bad, bad addict. Um, every time I was able to get a loan, I was doing drugs. I've been in prison four times, twice in the state, twice in the feds. I was doing all this crazy stuff, cooking drugs and just staying high. God called me from a prison cell. I was a homeless drug addict, and my hope was found in a needle. I was eight months pregnant, homeless, um, living out of my van. You know, it wasn't freeway that saved me, it wasn't John Stroop that saved me, but God uses freeway in such a mighty way as a tool to reach these people. There's not a community or a county in America that doesn't have a drug problem. And the, the church has the answer and it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Welcome to One Broken Life. My name is John Stroop with my special guest, Caitlin. Hi, John. Glad to have you today. Thank you. Uh, One Broken Life is a podcast of Freeway Ministries, a production of Freeway Ministries, and um, we believe the bigger the mess, the bigger the message many times. And so today we get to explore uh, a, a broken life, and we get to look um, inside of your tent and explore your life and hear from you, Caitlin, today. And, and I'm excited about that. And we, we, have, uh, we have different verses that we really like to kind of open the podcast with and one of them is psalms fifty-one seventeen, and and god says um uh, the sacrifice of god are a broken and contrite heart a broken and a contrite heart the bible says god will not despise and then um philippians 1 12 paul from prison on death row he says the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel and so today we're gonna explore your broken life and let people hear from you and so my, my, I just have a list kind of some questions I want to ask you today. Um, and so let, let everybody get to know you a little bit, Caitlin. Uh, what, was, what was life like growing up? Where did you come from? You share that. I grew up in Lee Summit, Missouri, in the suburbs right outside of Kansas City. And my parents were young, but they worked really hard to give us the best life possible. My dad was 17 when I was conceived, and... Um, so he tested out of high school early and um, joined the railroad. And so he quickly became a railroad engineer and um, started making six figures. My mom was able to be a stay-at-home mom for most of my childhood. Um, so, I mean, I was never abused or anything, grew up upper middle class lifestyle. Um, I have a brother that's 11 months younger than me, so we were pretty close in age and we were a sports family. You know, we weren't really in church, but... Um, my mom was raised in Catholic school, so she would talk to us about Jesus from time to time, you know, Christmas and Easter, stuff like that. Okay. And so uh, your dad worked for the railroad, and you had a pretty good life. Yeah. So no no real war stories from your childhood, just normal. I, I hate normal. That word doesn't work. <laughs> uh, just kind of a, a picture-perfect uh, white picket fence-type family. Pretty close. Okay. For a while. And so, uh, when did your addiction start? When did when did things start turning? Um, when I was 12 years old, my parents um, started to go through the process of getting a divorce, and I was very angry. I was very mad, and I felt like um, 
just very betrayed and like my whole world was falling apart and I was so angry and I already had this friend who had an older sister that was probably 16 at the time and so she had already kind of been introducing us to certain things and so um, once I found out that my parents were getting divorced I just kind of said screw it and jumped in and so we were drinking alcohol smoking weed smoking cigarettes taking just random pills we would huff air freshener and huff axe body spray and just anything really that we could get our hands on at 12 years old so you were self-medicating yes because of the pain absolutely your mom and dad separating Mm -hmm. okay and you were 12 yes and so um so let's talk about the journey like um from that moment to where you started self-medicating trying to cover that void up that you needed jesus right and so uh, we, we talk about the two things that people have to be able to answer is who am I and what is my purpose? And until you know who you are and what your purpose is, you're going to continually try to find something to, to fill that void with. And, um, and so you were on a hunt, really, and you probably didn't even realize that. But um, the pain and, and the, the things going on in your childhood, you turn to, to drugs and... Um, whatever else, you know. And so from 12 years old, so you and I, uh, we met, you came on the bus ministry. And um, and so there's a long journey there. You know, what was it, 10 years ago, nine years ago? A little over nine years ago. And so uh, I didn't meet a 12-year-old little girl from Lee Summit. Right. You know, and so what, if you can give us a five-minute version of that journey from – uh, that 12-year-old little girl to the girl that came off the bus nine years ago. How old are you right now? I am 30. 30, okay. And when you when you look at Caitlin, you look at you, I see you. If I didn't know any better, I would never know anything about, about your past. Right. And, and so it's obvious that God has done a work in your life. And so uh, we'll, we'll share the journey with our friends and me from that 12-year-old little girl until the girl that got off the bus at Freeway? So um, by the age of 13, I was sexually active with um, guys that were a lot older than me. And throughout high school, I tried just pretty much any drugs that I could get my hands on, Um, cocaine, acid, shrooms, molly, ecstasy. Um, I had a pretty bad Xanax addiction for a lot of years, and um, I skipped a lot of classes. I did graduate high school, but we had to file an appeal to get all of my credits to graduate because I had so many absences. And I, um, the summer after my senior year of high school, my best friend from childhood um, committed suicide. She hung herself and um, she was still alive when they cut her down. So I had to go to the hospital and say goodbye to her when she was on life support. And um, she looked, she looked really, really bad. It was, it was really hard on me. And that was when um, I kind of went off the deep end, and my es- my addiction escalated even more at that point. So I had another friend who had um, started using meth, and I had another kind of, you know, just screw it moment, and I went to her, and I said, I want to try meth with you. And she, you know, tried to talk me out of it and tell me, you know, once you start, you're going to be hooked. You won't want to stop. You won't be able to stop. And I was like, I don't know anybody else. I don't know where I, I would be able to get it. You know, it, it'll just be a one-time thing. I just want to try it. I just want to see what it feels like. And um, 
I did. I tried it, and I was hooked. Next thing I knew, I was with her every single day getting high. And I had gotten an early acceptance into the nursing program at William Jewell College. And so after the summer was over, I was supposed to just go move into my dorm and and start college. And um, I moved in, but I couldn't do it. I couldn't get out of bed. You know, I was so depressed. The only time I could get out of bed was to get high. You know, I didn't go to class. I didn't do anything I was supposed to be doing. So after a month, I dropped out. I uh, moved in with a boyfriend, and um, his uncle became addicted to meth, and he and I were using meth together. And he started to get pretty stupid about it, you know, selling it out of the house, a lot of traffic in and out all hours of the night. And um, I knew that I needed to get out of there. I knew that the house was getting ready to get kicked in. And I had this other friend that I had known my whole life, and she told me all about being a stripper and about how I could make enough money to get out of that house in probably just one night, you know, and get my own place. And so that's what I did. I went 19 years old and started stripping in clubs in Kansas, um, just using meth, using cocaine, um, smoking weed, getting drunk, taking a bunch of Xanax, you know, doing anything that I could to bring myself to to get on that stage and do the things that I did. You know, I did a lot of things that I'm not proud of. Um, there were a lot of really creepy old guys that would come in there. We would purposefully uh, go across state lines so that we could strip in clubs that had um, more lax rules. And there was these, I remember this one old guy would come in with nothing on but a trench coat. And they would try to get you back in the VIP room and get you to you know, pay extra money to do things that we weren't supposed to be doing. So um, I definitely did a lot of things that I'm not proud of and um, got fired from clubs because you know, they saw me as a liability, 19, getting drunk, getting high, doing all these things I'm not supposed to be doing. And so um, we would get fired from clubs and we would just kind of bounce around from club to club. And there was this one in Lawrence, Kansas, where um, the DJ um, tried to lock me in a bathroom and rape me. And um, that that really shook me. And that was kind of a turning point for me to uh, to run back home to my parents and they had been, I had two households that had been begging me to come home, you know, and that was kind of the thing that shook me and got me to, to come back home. And I tried to, to get off meth and stay off meth, but I was just using all of these other substances to do it. And I was very sloppy with my Xanax addiction. I would just black out and not remember entire days. My friends were always mad at me. Um, I would get kicked out of bars, kicked out of clubs. Fight everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Drink and Xanax. Yeah, falling down, you know, hurting myself. I was a hot mess. And I had this, you know, I thought that I would be able to just, you know, party for a few years and then I would live a normal life and I would go to college. And so I tried to do community college a couple of times and I couldn't do it. I couldn't balance life. I couldn't budget my money. I couldn't, you know pass my classes or do just live a normal life and I um there was one night when I was 21 and I was going out to go drinking I was going out to these bars with some friends and I had gone to church with a friend a couple of times in her family but I had a lot of doubts about the bible you know that it could be real that it could be trusted that god could be real that god could you know, want to know me in a personal way. And I had had, um, I got a DUI when I was 18. I had a few charges that I was able to work out deals for and stuff, but 
I remember going out that night and I said it out loud. I was like, God, if you're real, if you're really out there, please, whatever you do, please do not let me get another DUI tonight. And I just remember thinking, I'm going to control my drinking this time. Like, I'm going to do better. And I purposefully only brought in a little bit of cash with me. I didn't bring in any cards. You know, I was just going to have a couple drinks. And I was not going to overdo it this time. And um, I remember something made me mad. My ex-boyfriend showed up at one of the clubs or something. And I'm next thing you know, I'm double fisting drinks. And I'm out on the dance floor acting a fool. And um, that was the last thing I remember. And then I woke up the next morning in a hospital bed. And... Um, I had alcohol poisoning, so I wasn't able to control it, and I had vomit all over me, you know, the nurse gave me some scrubs to change into, because I had puked all over my clothes, and she said, um, you're so lucky that you did not get a DUI, or hurt yourself, or hurt anybody else, and so I just thought that I didn't drive, and I got out of the hospital, and I was on a mission to find my car, and I couldn't find my car anywhere. It wasn't at any of the bars or clubs that I had gone to. None of my friends knew where it was. I called all the tow lots. None of them had it. I was just completely blacked out. I had no memory. And so I even called the one of the bars that I was at was, um, like, right on the line between Independence and Kansas City. And so I called the police departments in both cities and asked them if they had a police report on me. Like, I was just trying to fill in the pieces of what happened and they said no and so finally I called the hospital and asked them how I got to the hospital and they told me that an ambulance brought me so they gave me the phone number of the ambulance company that picked me up and I called the ambulance company and they gave me the address of where they picked me up so my mom's friend gave me a ride to go look for my car and she was a recovering alcoholic so she used that car ride to try to convince me to go to treatment and to talk to me about how her alcoholism affected her children and how I needed to get this under control before, you know, I had children or anything like that. And I wasn't really having it. And, but then we get there to this bank and there's my car parked at this bank and there's vomit all outside of the car, all inside of the car, um, you know, puke in the center console and um, open containers everywhere. And I had already reported the car stolen. So I had to call the police and tell them that it wasn't stolen, that I found the car. And they said, well, don't drive it. We have to have an officer come out and verify this. So this um, Jackson County Sheriff pulls up. And I'm trying to be very vague and discreet about my mistake and thinking that it was stolen. You know, I'm trying not to incriminate myself. And this cop looks at me and he said, you don't remember me? I'm like, no. He said, would you like to know what happened last night? And so um, my heart just sank, you know, and I felt like I had been punched in the gut. And he told me that I had passed out behind the wheel of my car while I was driving down 40 Highway. And um, him and his partner were pulling out of the gas station. And I came within about an inch of hitting his partner's squad car. And he said that they, they were able to stop my vehicle. They were able to get me out of it. I was nodding in and out of consciousness. Um, the only thing that they could get me to say was they asked me how many drinks I had had, and I said, I don't know, at least 12, and then I passed out again. And he said, I can't put my finger on it. I still can't even explain it. I don't know why. Maybe it's because we both have daughters, but we just felt like we needed to put you in the ambulance and let you go without filing any charges against you. And I just thought back to that foxhole prayer that I prayed, you know, before I even went out, like, God, if you're real, if you're there, please do not let me get another DUI tonight. 
and I couldn't believe it. You know, I was so dumb. I was so stupid. And he still answered my prayer and it just, it shook me to my core. And I just knew that God was real and that the Bible could be trusted. And I told the officer, you know, thank you so much. I'm going to go get help. And he said, do you think that you have a problem? I said, I know that I do. So I went home and laid in bed for about three days recovering from the alcohol poisoning. But the whole time I was calling my insurance company, calling treatment centers. And so um, three days later, I checked myself into inpatient treatment and um, never really looked back. I was able to go to church while I was in treatment and um, the gospel was clearly presented to me and I was so broken over my sin. I knew that I needed a savior. I knew that I wasn't gonna be able to control my addiction on my own, control my sin on my own. And so um, I went forward for a salvation while I was in treatment at that church. What and, church, can you tell me? Um, it was actually in Texas. Okay. So I was on that good railroad insurance. So I was able to go to this <laughs> really nice treatment center in Texas. Okay. And, um, I think it was like the Church on the Rock or something like that, if I remember correctly. They still send me emails. I must have signed up for some email chain. But I got baptized while I was in treatment, and I remember people in treatment making fun of me and mocking me and stuff, but I didn't care. And um, I knew that I didn't want to go back to Kansas City and be around the same people and temptations and environments. And my brother was going to Missouri State at the time in Springfield, and so I just thought, well, let me look at Springfield and see – what they have. And this was back in 2013 and the recovery scene in Springfield was not what it is today. There was almost zero resources for women in recovery and sober living at that time. Um, but I just happened to stumble across uh, Victory Mission and they had the Victory House over off Ingram Mill Road at that time. And um, they did a phone interview with me and I got accepted into the New Life program with Victory Mission. So I got out of treatment, went home for Thanksgiving, had Thanksgiving with my family, and then moved into the Victory House. And my very first night at the Victory House, my roommates told me about Freeway Ministries and asked me if I wanted to go with her. And um, so we called the transportation line, and they came and picked us up. That's so cool. Yeah. Well, I want you to know I'm so proud of the woman you've become. Thank you. I mean that. Thank you. You're, you're a champion. And uh, it's just cool. It's sad to hear of that stuff mm-hmm. because I look at you as a daughter. And, yeah. uh, but you'll be able to help a lot of people with that story. And yeah. so thank you for opening yourself up like that and sharing with our people and me. Um, so you came on the bus. Yes. And uh, so you drive the bus today, amen? <laughs> I, I, yeah, and I actually get to be um, a team leader. Once a month I run transportation, so it's it's pretty cool. So how did God use uh, – so maybe you're listening, you don't know what Freeway Ministries is, so I'm just going to give a quick kind of a spiel. Uh, every Saturday here where we're sitting, we have our uh, an outreach where we provide food, transportation, and then we also uh, preach the gospel, and uh, we invite people to, to respond to that message. And then we also invite them to a local church, and we take them to church if they need a ride on Sunday. And, um, and so that's where Caitlin came. In 13, we weren't in this building. We were in the old dirty gym. Yep. And uh, hot in the summer, cold in the winter, bats and rats and all that. But, uh, but anyways, so you enter 
you come to Freeway. Uh, and so uh, just short, kind of a brief, uh, how did, how has God used that relationship uh, to change your life? With Freeway? Absolutely. I mean, I fell in love with Freeway from the very beginning. You know, you just feel at home like you belong. There's all these people that have been through the same things that you've been through, and you see God working in their lives and the, just that victory that they have, you know. And um, I started, even though I didn't live in a Freeway house, um, you all had opened the first women's discipleship house while I was at Victory Mission. And I just started following the structure of the freeway program with, along with the other girls, even though I didn't live in the house. And so, you know, I did Monday night Bible study, Tuesday night book study, you know, in church every time the doors were open. I got discipled one-on-one -on -one through freeway. I started serving in child care at freeway. And um, it just, it really helped me to grow spiritually and have a firm foundation and also just to have people that would pour into me and then people that I could pour into. And it's just a great model to be able to follow. I still follow a lot of it today because it works. It's awesome. And so uh, what's your biggest battles today as a, as a Christian, as a single mom, as a, it's like, what is your, what kind of battles do you face today? So you've been, You've been walking with God since 2013, right? And so uh, you've come a long way since then. So I don't really have this on my little outline I'm going off of, but uh, you're not you're not in a program anymore, so to speak. You know, it's mm -hmm. been a long time. Yeah. Uh, and so let's just kind of talk through, you know, where you're at today and how you got there just briefly. Uh, you know, you were... You were in a shelter, a women's program, really. Um, yes. And so, and now, who are you today? Like, um, how'd you get there? Well, um, I've learned a lot through the storms. I've grown a lot through the storms. And from even my mistakes, um, looking back, I can see, you know, a lot of mistakes that I made while I was at Victory Mission. Um, I got involved in a romantic relationship and um, was disobedient in a lot of ways to the program. And um, I remember we thought that we were, we were good. We were doing the right thing because we were in church and we weren't having sex, but I was being so disobedient and so sneaky and kind of living this double life behind the scenes of my program. And um, I ended up getting married and, um, you know, he ended up relapsing a few years later. So I kind of had an abusive marriage for a while um, and I have a son now he's four years old and so I've been divorced uh, but I I've learned a lot through that and God has grown me so much closer to him through that and it, it allowed me to to loosen my grip on the things of this world you know I was kind of clinging on tight to material things and things that don't have eternal value and I I felt called to ministry very early in my walk with the Lord, but I didn't surrender to ministry until after um, I got divorced. So I'm thankful. I'm thankful for that. And I, um, man, I uh, get to be a Sunday school teacher. 
at Crossway and I get to work with the girls at Freeway and I get to be a behavioral health provider. I work at a high school. I, um, I did run a Christian preschool for a few years and got to run this business for a church. They put me on their bank account and gave me a debit card and just really trusted me. And so that was pretty crazy. But um, I think right now some of the biggest battles that I face is, you know, I'm, I'm very burdened for my son. Um, in my line of work, we talk about ACEs, their adverse childhood experiences that can affect you, you know, into, adult, into adulthood. And so um, my son has experienced five out of the top ten ACEs already, you know, um, a parent with a mental health disorder, a parent with a substance abuse disorder, divorce, domestic violence, and incarcerated parent. And so that's a big burden that I have is to try to make sure that those things don't affect him going into his adulthood and also the kids that I work with at the high school, you know, they've gone through a lot of those same things. And um, I'm pretty burdened for the ladies in the freeway houses, you know. I want them. We've seen a lot of ladies that that come and go over the years and that don't make it. And so I just, I'm, I want them to feel so loved and so at home here and have such a family here and to have such a firm foundation that they never, they never want to leave, that they never go back out and relapse. You know, I, uh, I wonder sometimes why people walk away from everything they have here. They have, uh, when I say here, I don't just mean freeway. I mean the local church, you know, we have, we have partner local churches that are just, Man, they're so awesome, you know, and uh, Marshfield, Springfield, Ashgrove. And uh, those churches have that network of the moms and the dads and the grandmas and the grandpas and the big sisters and big brothers and, you know, all that stuff. And uh, and it's like God surrounds our people uh, like the mountains surround Jerusalem. I mean, everything you need is there. And then they leave that. Yeah. You know. And, and I wonder why. Yeah, I mean, the local church really, truly surrounded me during um, those abusive times in my marriage and through my divorce, and I'm very thankful for that. It really showed me the importance of the body of Christ, and I'm very thankful to you and Sharla. You guys took me into your house more than once when I didn't feel safe to go home, and um, Roger and Donna Gray took me into their house more than once when things got really bad. And, um, you know, there were so many people that were just a, a phone call away that would talk me through things and you know amber you know you're not going to go to court alone you're not going to do this alone and so i'm i'm very thankful for that and my son comes to church and he's got like six grandmas and grandpas and you know he's running around grandma grandpa papa mama and he you know everybody's loving on him and so i'm i'm very thankful for that it's beautiful yeah and uh that's what we're supposed to do you know this isn't a nine to five we don't get that option. And so this is our life. Um, this is who we are. And so uh, you got to be all in. If you're going to be all in, you got to be all in. Yes. And Discipleship is a, a lifestyle. That's something that I've learned since I got divorced. You know, um, it's not just seeing each other at church on Sunday morning. It's not just going through the discipleship book. It's doing life together and carrying each other's burdens. And it truly is a lifestyle. So, so my... Why do they leave the church? And so I just want to bring this up. And it, God showed me why. It's not hard to leave something you were never a part of. 
And so the reason people leave is because they never become part of the church. They're just surface level. And uh, they're not really plugged in. They're not really involved. They're not really invested. And so uh, one of our guys that was here, his name's Ian, and he's a missionary to Guam now. And uh, and the first time he had his heart broke here, because he doesn't come from our background. Yeah. He, he thought this guy, he said he was my friend. You know, he loved this guy. He was in our program. And uh, the guy just left in the middle of the night and never even said bye. Yeah. And uh, and he and he realizes what is this is Ian's words. I got to be careful how I say this. So, people that come from our background, they leave and they don't say bye. Yeah. And you know, it's something that he wasn't used to, because when you leave and you're a friend, you say bye to your friends and let them know right. you're leaving. You know, um, but when you're really not a part of something, it's not hard to leave it. It's not hard to walk away from it. And so, uh, talk about just, you know, long-term recovery, born-again Christian, godly mom, you know, raising your kids and your son in the church. What's that like? How hard is that? It's definitely a busy life. Um, Don't have a whole lot of downtime, but I think I need it to be that way. You know, I need to be busy. I need to be serving so that I can be right in my walk with the Lord and in my sobriety and everything. So, um, but it's definitely not easy. And, um, you know, kind of like what you said, these girls will break your heart and ministry is not, it's not always easy and, but it's worth it. And, um, my job can be kind of tough, you know, listening to these kids talk about, the horrible things that they've been through, you know, and it can be rough. So I, I have to be um, very careful to lean on the Lord and and not get um, not get too caught up in those things. But um, my son had a lot of challenges in the beginning. You know, he watched his dad assault me. Um, he watched his dad get arrested, and so he, you know, and then he hasn't seen his dad in almost two years. And so, you know, he's had some struggles for sure, and he had some behavior issues in the beginning. So that was kind of tough to deal with. And I had my own trauma that I was working through too. You know, I had a lot of anxiety and fear and panic. And so, you know, I went through a year of domestic violence counseling for that and just really trying to work with my son with his behavior. And um, I really clung on to the things that you've said to me, you know, that I can't feel bad for him you know I can't parent him out of guilt you know because his dad left that I have to still hold him accountable and um to just provide that atmosphere of change and always be pointing him to the gospel in every way possible and it's working so thank you yeah the last thing you need to do is parent out of guilt yeah because then you'll enable him yep so he's gonna be all right yeah he's surrounded yeah he's already been doing so much better he's he's pretty cool and he's fast yeah, he's fast, but he loves church, you know. <laughs> he loves church so much, and he loves freeway. He can run. He can run. I'm thinking, you can't catch him. You said you can, <laughs> but I don't think so. I think he can outrun you, Caitlin. I'm just going to be honest with you. And I thought, man, how, what is he going to do if he just breaks loose because he's so fast, you know. But uh, praise the Lord, he hasn't done that yet. Yeah. Um, so where do you serve at? Uh, tell everybody where you serve at today. So I serve at the Freeway Women's Bible Study once a month on Monday night. 
and I'm discipling one of the girls in the freeway program uh, every week. I am a life group teacher at Crossway Baptist Church, and so I teach, and then we do um, go visits for that, and I work with the kids at Freeway West, and I'm a team leader for freeway transportation. So that's Sunday, Monday, Friday, Saturday. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, yeah, in church on Wednesday. Thursday is usually like my only day off. So what do you do for fun? For fun, um, Aiden and I like to play around a lot. You know, we like to prank each other. He's pretty, he's a little prankster. We like to prank each other. We like to wrestle, you know, have dance parties. Um, I like to, I re- honestly, I think hanging out with my friend, my freeway friends is fun. You know, hanging out with the girls in the house. We do stupid stuff like spicy food challenges and <laughs> things like that. Now you're talking um. my language. <laughs> uh so what's God doing in your life today, Caitlin? He's really growing me um, in ministry, I think, and sometimes it's it's very uncomfortable. But, um, you know, over the summer, I went through a season where I was kind of discontent um, with singleness specifically. So um, I remembered what you had said and I think you got that from Pastor Eddie, but um, to just study what you're struggling with. And so I started really studying it out and, um, you know, looking at the scriptures and listening to sermons and listening to podcasts and stuff. And God really helped me to um, be able to be content in this season of singleness and to really see it for the opportunity that it is to be able to serve God full force and to spend time with the girls and um, to just do things that I might not have had the opportunity to do. And so, um, and God has been faithful to show me some things too, that I need to work on with myself, you know, um, think, you know, would I be ready to have somebody in all of the intimate parts of my life again, you know, and see the way that I run my household and my finances and my spiritual life and my parenting. And so God's really just been working on me of, um, just weeding out any of those things that don't glorify him. And at the same time, you're bringing this man into Aiden's life. And so that's yeah. a big deal. And Absolutely. So you just, the Bible says godliness with contentment is great gain. Yes. So I think contentment comes first. You, you know, if you're not content, you know, godliness with contentment. And so godliness is great gain, but boy, it's yeah. really great when you have contentment. And being content is a really big deal. Absolutely. And, and I think a lot of times, especially with these girls that we've been talking about, uh, a lot of times the reason they do fall down is because they stop being content and they want that relationship so bad and they wait and it doesn't come in their time. Um, and they, Jesus isn't enough anymore. They need that relationship. And Right. You have to get to that point where Christ is enough, Christ alone, you know. And God has showed me a lot of things in that area. Um I don't want someone, as my high schoolers would say, that slides into my DMs, you know, because they think you're hot or whatever. You know, you want somebody that's going to do things in the right way that is a godly person that has that firm foundation and has accountability and is prayerful about it. You know, I think there's this big, um, this even amongst Christians, you know, this culture that we need to shop around and date around, and I just I don't believe that that's the way that, that God operates. So... 
Did you ever think that your life could be what it is right now? No, absolutely not. I did think that I would be able to, you know, party for a few years and then I would become a normal person who could just, you know, go to college, have a good job, socially drink and, you know, what the world standards are as normal, but I couldn't even do that on my own. But never in a million years did I think that I would be walking with the Lord and have the life that I have now. You're a homeowner, right? I am a homeowner, yes. You own your own home. Yep, I own my home. I own my car outright. And I don't carry any debt except for my mortgage, but I, you know. Came off a bus from a homeless shelter. Yep. And look at you today. Yep. God's been good to you, man. He has. I was studying uh, for a message, Luke 17, uh, the 10 lepers. And, uh, And God showed me what true surrender is. Full surrender. Uh, the ten lepers were healed by Jesus, and one of them was a Samaritan. And Jesus basically said, "You know, they're waiting on. They put they strategically put themselves on a corner because they knew Jesus was coming, hoping he would pass by, because they couldn't just go to him. You know, they were unclean. And so they're making all this racket because they see him. You know, they're they're hollering out on him, and, and they're they're asking for mercy, and." Um, Jesus heals them, but he says, you have to go show yourself to the priest. So there is a faith element, right? They weren't healed until they trusted him. Right. And so they turned, and it says as they went, they were healed. And it says uh, the, the Samaritan comes back to him. And I thought, that's interesting, you know. And he falls down and he worships him. The Samaritan couldn't just go to the temple because he was unclean. He wasn't a Jew. He wasn't like the rest of them. He wasn't accepted there. And and it was like he came to Jesus and he said, I have nowhere else to go but you. You know, you're all I got. Right. I can't go there. I have nowhere else to go but you. And it's been, I got out of prison in 2009, and I still don't have anywhere else to go but Jesus. Yeah. You know, you know, I have a, I have a home and, and, and I'm, I have a, a great job that I love. And I have a wife that I love and kids that I love, but they don't have what Jesus has. Right. I don't have anywhere else to go but Jesus. And I think when you see that, you know, mm-hmm. you will fall down and surrender to him. And that's what you've been doing. You're surrendering to him. Absolutely. And yeah. I mean, I did go through a season um, when things were bad in my marriage and I was, I didn't have my priorities in the right order. You know, I was putting my son before God, before my marriage, before myself, before anything. And um, I kind of got sucked into this idea that, you know, once you have a kid that you need to kind of step away from ministry and, you know, focus on your family and you don't have to go to church as much and family time is more important and stuff. And and I did get kind of disconnected for a while, and I did become lukewarm for a little bit and um, wasn't serving and was just kind of, you know, sneaking in and out of church and, and not really being connected and plugged in the way that I should have. And so um, I'm thankful for my divorce bringing me back to that place where, you know, I was on my face crying out to God like I didn't know how anything was going to work out, you know, and I needed him more than anything. And... Um, so I'm I'm very thankful for him bringing me back to that place where I'm just so excited about my salvation. I'm so excited about 
what he's done in my life, and I can't help but but to share it, and I hope that I never lose that ever again. You can't get over it. Yeah. Uh, don't ever get over your salvation. Are you happy today? I am. I'm very happy. You have joy. Yes, I do. Amen. I have joy. Amen. Well, I appreciate you sharing your heart uh, with our people. And, and um, is there anything you want to add before we close? Um, I mean, the only thing that I can think of for anybody that's watching is, you know, God can take any of those broken pieces of your heart and, and he can heal them and any of those strongholds that you have, um, whether it be addiction, whether it be trauma, anything, you know, and he can heal that. He's even from when I was lost and, you know, from when I was saved, he's healed, he's healed all of it and he's used it for his glory. He's used it for my good. And so, you know, he's, he's a good God. He's worth surrendering to. Amen. Stay surrendered, okay? I will. Your little boy, he needs you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us today, Caitlin. If you've enjoyed uh, this podcast, this episode of One Broken Life, uh, do me a favor and subscribe. Share this with your friends on whatever platform you listen to, whether it's uh, Spotify or YouTube or whatever the case may be. And this is a production of Freeway Ministries, and so... In order for us to keep continue to do this, if you want to support us, you can go to freeway-ministries.com and you can become a partner with us. So until next time, John Shroop and my friend Caitlin, and uh, we, we want to say thanks for joining us and we'll see you again.